Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. Today's buzz, this is a hot topic, so listen up. It impacts everybody. The topic is pharma and technology. Let me get started. We all know populations are aging. Yep. We are. Chronic illnesses are increasing. Just look around you. Talk to friends and relatives. And new disease strains are emerging at an alarming rate. You know what's in the news every minute right now. Add to this mix the soaring number of patients in a greater spread of geographies. On top of that, add global regulatory mandates. Then factor in variable dosage needs. Think about the shelf life of pharmaceuticals and medications. And it's no wonder that we're looking at global health care costs that are skyrocketing. At the same time, there's pressure on pharma to develop innovative drugs to save more lives. That's what it's really all about. There's an urgency. There's a dire need to do something, and it raises many questions. Let me just pose a couple. How can pharma organizations accelerate their R&D, research and development, but without compromising quality? They need to deliver new, affordable therapies that effectively fight complex, life-threatening illnesses. Yes, cancer is still around and going strong. Clinical trials are part of the critical phase in this long, complex drug development cycle. How can pharma lower the costs, accelerate time to market, do it safely? And the big question of the day is, is technology the key to improving patient outcomes while reducing costs and getting the job done? I have a panel of three experts who are prepared to talk to us about this, help us figure out what is going on, how technology may or may not help, and if it can, what is the role of technology in the pharma industry today? So let me get started introducing my panel. First up is Ashish Goel. He is Vice President and Regional Head for Life Sciences at Infosys in Europe. He's calling from Germany today, I believe. And Ashish sent me a wonderful quote from Albert Einstein. And by the way, those of you trivia fans, you may not know that Einstein is the most quoted person, living or dead, on SAP Radio and all of our shows. So here's the quote from Einstein. We cannot solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. Ashish Goel, welcome. How are you today? I'm good, Bonnie. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for joining me. Great quote from Einstein. We love Einstein quotes. Talk to me and let's relate this these words of wisdom to our topic of pharma and technology. Go ahead, Ashish. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Um, see, this is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, uh, the reality is that life is constantly evolving. So is the pharma industry. You just talked about uh, so many aspects uh, with falling mm-hmm. R&D productivity, with the need for uh, getting the drugs out faster. On the same time, on the same end, what we see today is uh, uh, the 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 type of diseases we need to fight are becoming more and more challenging with uh, increasing uh, uh, demographic complexity and so on and so forth. And the old um, scientific research methods are fast becoming saturated, and that's one of the reasons why we don't see as many new compounds hitting the market. Uh, in that kind of situation, uh, the industry as a whole is hitting a, a high-cost pressure, faster time-to-market kind of challenge. And uh, this is 
a situation which pharma industry never faced before. Uh, in fact, some of these challenges are uh, a result of the excesses of past in the industry. And hence, I thought uh, this is a quote which actually we brings us back into something which is very meaningful, very purposeful, and so much forward-looking that we cannot solve the challenges the industry is facing today if we continue trying to solve it the way we have tried doing it in the past. And very so, profound. So that's, that's, the, yeah. that's the profound sense I get out of it. Very much. Very profound. Great opening quote. Thank you, Ashish. Let me welcome our second panelist. It's Dr. Alan S. Louie, Research Director at IDC Health Insights. And Dr. Louie, I'll call him Alan, sent me the following quote. It's an ancient Chinese curse. You may not listen to it as a curse first, but Alan will describe it to us. May you live in interesting <laughs> times. I want to know what's so threatening about that. Alan Louie, welcome. How are you today? Very good, Bonnie. Thanks for, for having me on the show. You know, it, it's always interesting the way you think about, you know, the way you want your life to proceed under normal circumstances. You know, you want everything to sort of go uh, on track, no unforeseen surprises, etc. But we're really living in times where everything is really going a lot more quickly than it used to in the past. Uh, I was actually quite amused recently by my uh, discussion with one of our junior marketing folks who was commenting to me that, well, She's actually only lived in the time of smartphones, and, and I was contemplating mm-hmm. writing something where I was talking about using a rotary phone and then realized very quickly that most people might not know what that meant. So <laughs> we're actually living in times where lots of information is now readily accessible, uh, and we expect that to be the case. You know, everybody Googles things. And so when you want a piece of information, it's not good enough for it to, to take um, days or weeks. Now it has to show up in seconds. And so that information is now accessible to us. And then as we look at what's going on, particularly within the pharmaceutical industry and the, the greater overall life science healthcare ecosystem, a lot of information and data is present, which I think we really need to be able to use and leverage to work smarter. Uh, I would agree with Ashish in that, yes, you know, we, we're really evolving very, very quickly. And so mm-hmm. all of this information is being brought together such that as we look at the way in which, you know, our daily life is going, things need to be going moving very, very quickly. And so the interesting times part is that you can always expect something new to be popping up. And something that was basically considered to be a best practice um, as, as little as six, six months ago or a year ago is now going to be outmoded, and we need to change it into newer things that actually take into account resources available to us. Thank you, Alan. Great insights. And I'm glad that you related it back to Ashish's Einstein quote, because that's what, that's the function of these opening quotes as they set the stage and they help to link the topic together. Thank you. And let's welcome our third panelist. It's Joe Miles, Global Vice President, Life Sciences Industry for SAP. And the author of this quote is a little bit mysterious. I think Joe will elaborate. He says, these are words from a former FDA investigator, probably anonymous. And here's the quote. If it's not documented, it's it's just a rumor. Joe Miles, welcome. How are you today? <laughs> well, it's great to be here. And uh, it's interesting, my quote being a little converse to the previous ones, but uh, I took a little more pragmatic approach. And it's, it's a quote I've, I've heard years ago, and it actually came from an investigator who you did not want to darken your doorway because you, you were going to have a difficult day if that was the case. But I think what's what is changed, and I would agree with the previous speakers, this is an incredible time within the industry. There's still a fair amount that comes down to, you know, documentation, whether it's we've seen the proliferation of regulatory requirements globally around serialization, around HCP, around SCPA, around um, CETA's 
types of, of regulatory requirements. I don't think never more has there been as much as continues to go on in a, in a very heavily regulated industry to start with. Yet at the same time, there's a magnitude of changes that are going on. And I would agree with the previous speakers. So if you look at where the market is going in terms of um, the, the need to reduce costs, but also the need to improve uh, outcomes at, at staggering levels and, and rapidly uh, developing that. If you think about the proliferation of the devices that, um, whether whether it's a Google contact lens that's capturing uh, sugar readings in your tear duct uh, for glucose readings uh, for diabetic patients or um, potentially wearable devices of sorts that are capturing patient uh, outcome information um, without the ability to understand that, that information, without the ability to then properly put it in a construct and, and still work through all of the documentation, it ultimately will not, not be successful. And I think it, in today's world of the advancements in the technologies across the board and the, the proliferation of data, is everything from genomic data to, as I mentioned, patient-provided patient outcome data, um, that's tremendous opportunities for great insights, yet at the same time it's overwhelming many organizations and their ability to understand all that data, to understand all that information, and to be able to put it into a proper context that can drive towards reducing, the, uh, reducing that healthcare expense while, while simultaneously providing you know, superior outcomes to what we've had in the past. Thank you, Joe. You have basically said the title of today's show, Pharma and Technology, Higher Outcomes, Lower Costs. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Save me from saying it. Ha ha. Uh, question for my panel. We're going to digress for just a moment here because you're on our live show called Coffee Break with Game Changers presented by SAP. By the way, this is live episode number 151, if anybody's keeping track. My question for the panel is, what's in your cup today? What are you drinking? Just a little story. I love one. Tell me where you're calling from, what time of day it is, and if there's nothing really interesting in your cup, tell me a story about what you wish you were drinking. Ashish Goel, talk to me. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. It is uh, 5 p.m., just after 5 p.m. in Berlin, so uh, it's not coffee for me, though. Uh, it's a hot cup of old gray tea, uh, though mm. considering we had October 1st is just around the corner, it could have just been a beer. <laughs> and if it had been a beer, Ashish, what kind of beer would it have been? Come on, tell us. So if I'm in Germany, it has to be draft. It has to be uh, local brewery-made beer. Do you have a favorite local brand, or do you like to sample? No, actually, no brand. It has to be local breweries made. So, so you, in Germany, that's the beauty. You just go around uh, the pub hopping, and, and you find... These fantastic, beautiful pubs, which actually brew their own beer, and and there's nothing like that. Lovely, lovely. Now we have something to look forward to when we go over there. Thank you, Alan Louie. Where are you calling from, and what's in your cup today? Yes, let's see. So it's a beautiful day here in Framingham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. It's uh, obviously a little bit after 11 in the morning here. We see blue skies, and I think it's foreseeable for the next several days. It's 70-ish, and to our greatest blessing. There's very low humidity today, so it's actually quite pleasant to be outside as compared to just a few weeks ago when it was in the 90s with with stifling humidity, which made our lives uh, a bit difficult mm. to be outside since, you, it's, since you'd go outside and you'd be sweating without having done anything. Uh, mm-hmm. In my cup, uh, as, as usual, I, I start off the morning with a, a double cappuccino, and that's enough to keep me juiced through the, through the lunch hour. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there anything in that cappuccino? Any any extra sweetener or how do you take it? Just straight out? 
Oh, I, I drink it with a little bit of um, uh, zero-calorie support. I'm trying to be good. Uh, as you get older, <laughs> one starts realizing that there's calories all around us that are quite useless, uh, and I do my best to avoid them. There are? Oh, thank you. Okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> I learn something every day. Joe Miles, what's in your cup? Where are you today? So I'm in the lovely area of the East Bay of uh, San Francisco across the bridge, uh, where it is a beautiful day. It's about 8.15 here, there, here in the East Bay, and uh, another simply glorious uh, day, cloudless skies and so forth. Um, mm. I'm not much of a, uh, a morning drinker in terms of uh, coffee or whatever. I have uh, actually have a little tea this morning um, and uh, just getting ready to start the day. So, Thank you very much. And we have a message here from Malcolm Kimberlin, my co-producer on Coffee Break Radio. He says he likes his Phil's Coffee cup of love thick as mud and dark as a moonless night. Oh, Malcolm the poet, thank you very much. I think I put together what I do. I did a little bit of... Uh, Keurig decaf in my, uh, yes, a K-cup of decaf, and I, I bought an Aero Latte frother, put about an inch of uh, very cold skim milk in a glass, and then I froth it and watch it quadruple in volume, and then I put that on top of the hot coffee and uh, just mix it up a little bit, and it was divine. They don't, by the way, they don't let me have caffeine on radio show days. I wonder why. Guess what? Our topic today is pharma and technology, higher outcomes, lower costs. We have a great panel. You've got to hear a little bit from them, and you're going to get to hear a lot more. I'm talking today with Ashish Goel at Infosys. Dr. Alan Louie, Research Director at IDC Health Insights, and Joe Miles, Life Sciences Industry for SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. When we come back after about a 90-second quick break, we're going to dive into a 30-minute roundtable. Yes, we are. And we're going to explore what is going on with pharma, the many ways technology can help, and let's see if we can get some optimism from the panel. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you're enjoying coffee break with game changers presented by sap you can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com and you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. 
And we're back. Thanks for staying with us. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers. We're talking today about pharma and technology, higher outcomes, lower costs. This is a topic that impacts everyone. I don't care if you're in or near or around the pharma industry. Pharma is a hot topic because of what's happening in the world, and we're going to find out a lot more about advances and what technology can do to make things better for everyone's health, any age, any place, any time of life. So, Ashish Golad, Infosys. Let's get started. I'd like to chat with you about, you sent me some notes about the importance of clinical trials. Let me just read a little bit, then you're going to expand, and we'll ask Alan Louie and Joe Miles to join in. So you say clinical trials are becoming challenging and are moving toward adaptive clinical trials. Some of the parameters below, you've told me, are the GO spread, the increased volumes, the delicate special handling compounds, varied variable dosage needs, et cetera, et cetera. Ashish, tell us about clinical trials. I I certainly don't know a lot about them other than what I might read in the news. So tell us about what they are and why all these factors come in, and then Alan and Joe will join. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Marty. Clinical trials are, uh, they form very key stage of uh, the whole clinical development process. That's a phase, uh, that's a a stage where uh, um, the, the credible molecules, credible compounds are tested through different phases and until uh, uh, they are deemed fit for consumption and uh, commercialization. Now, the challenge uh, today the industry faces, uh, faces for the clinical trial uh, are multiple. Uh, let me expand a little bit uh, what those challenges are. So uh, we, we, you talked initially about uh, the, the aging population, more complex complex diseases, more geospread. Today, the reality is that uh, to cater to uh, much higher uh, and complex demographic uh, targets, the trials are conducted across so many different geographies, uh, and uh, which bring a lot of complexity in distribution of, uh, of the drugs, of the compounds, uh, in, in the process to make sure uh, the, the trials remain fully auditable, fully transparent, and, uh, and compliant from regulatory standpoint. The volumes are increasing with geographies because uh, mm-hmm. more and more patients are enlisted today uh, to cater to different cohorts, different uh, uh, genetic pools, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, as the science evolves from small molecule-based drugs to large molecule-based drugs, the amount of data that's getting generated, and Joe actually talked about uh, high magnitude of genomics data, and, uh, and that we are talking about uh, some serious big data challenge there. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, within that, you are looking at more and more delicate special handling compounds which need to reach the point of clinical trial on time, in the right shape, and, uh, and ready to be used. So uh, today, uh, the lack of integration in technology poses a, a huge challenge for the pharma companies in order to make sure that they are neither running the situation where the, the, the samples are overstocked nor they are running out of uh, samples in a place where the clinical trials are happening. Uh, the R&D process is also becoming more and more externalized. So gone are the days when a lot of clinical trials were directly administered by the companies. Today, mm-hmm. uh, the whole R&D uh, process has become a lot more externalized. As a result, there are a lot many more uh, uh, breaks in the whole distribution network. And therefore, uh, 
the data and the information has to go through beyond the enterprise boundaries and doesn't remain within the four walls of a, of a company. And this is where uh, technology can play a huge role. Uh, the way we look at it, that uh, adoption of prediction, uh, predictive technology can actually help uh, the whole drug supply in a lot more uh, effective and efficient manner, uh, provide ability to the pharma companies to uh, deliver those samples the right place, to those compounds at the right place, mm-hmm. uh, provide big data analytics capabilities uh, to, uh, to assess and analyze the data that is getting generated today and make more informed decisions faster. One key thing in the success of, uh, in order to get the success uh, in getting, reducing the time to market in, uh, in clinical trials is uh, detecting the failures faster so that uh, the, the focus can be diverted to the, the right candidates and right compounds. And that's really linked to how the technology can be leveraged today in order to uh, assess and and detect the failures faster. Thank you, Ashish. Great introduction to the topic of clinical trials. I have a question I'm going to save until after we hear from Alan Louie and Joe Miles. Alan, thoughts on what Ashish shared in terms of setting us up on the parameters and the importance and the realities of today's clinical trials? Yes, thanks, Bonnie. So while I agree with all the things that she said, I would argue that the process is actually relatively mature in terms of the way in which clinical trials have historically been done. We've been doing clinical trials for probably more than 50 years, and so a lot of the basic processes have been well-established and are in place. You know, clearly we've been transforming those processes. It all started out with paper, and then essentially they electronic, created electronic versions of that paper. And, and then, as Ashisa said, the clear need as we look at what's going on now is the ability to basically take the content of what was collected in terms of the information collected in the course of a clinical trial and share that across the entire clinical ecosystem so that, for example, if some kind of a a medical result comes up that suggests that the patient has, say, for example, elevated blood pressure, and Mm -hmm. you start to see that across multiple patients, it could be an early sign of a a drug safety issue. And, And the one thing that we have to deal with nowadays is the fact that no one is willing to accept any drug that has any serious safety profiles associated with it. Uh, She's talked a little bit about how the trials are getting bigger and more global, et cetera, and in large part that's in in response to the fact that we had this drug called Vioxx, which in a fraction of a fraction of 1%, there was Mm -hmm. cardiovascular issues, meaning people had heart attacks and died. So that being an unacceptable response, it took a couple of years for them to figure out that that was a problem and then take that drug off the market. But using technology and having the right information in hand at the right time allows us really to interact with the people who are being uh, handed these drugs, the people associated with the trials, and to actually identify issues much more quickly and respond to that such that people are not, less people can, are potentially hurt as a result of that, and then more people can be saved when those drugs are driven to market. You know, similarly, as I indicated, indicated, the process has really been quite well established, but we are very much at the cusp of change. You know, adaptive is actually one form where, for example, if you've done um, a number of different drug levels in in dosing and you find out in analysis early that upon looking at certain key indicators that the drug is not working in in those particular, say, for example, very low levels, 
you can, based on the data that you've collected, terminate that level and focus all of your energies and resources on the higher levels where there's a much greater likelihood of success. In doing so, it saves the pharmaceutical companies money. You've not wasted resources on um, things that you know aren't going to work, and then you, at that point, also haven't exposed these these patients to anything that could potentially be harmful. So adaptive is one way. And then similarly, in the last few years, we've actually got another process which is actively being implemented in the space called risk-based monitoring, which, again, is another way of looking at the data to try to work more efficiently and be smarter as you move forward. Thank you, Alan. You brought up a lot of great points. One thing that caught my attention uh, out of all of that was when you said about Vioxx causing some illnesses that led to heart attacks that led to patient deaths. You said, I believe, it took a couple of years to take it off the market. That's the scary part. Is that part of the maturity of the clinical trial process, that it takes years to say, whoops, we got a problem here, Houston. We're not going to launch this anymore. We're not going to keep it on the market. Is that is that a normal time to pull a drug, or is there any way to just pull it pronto like that? What, what's your observation? Um, I don't know if there's really a normal way to pull a drug. Uh, basically, the result of the Vioxx study was that the, tr- that the clinical trials got a lot bigger, particularly for those drugs that are given out to a large population of potential patients and are routinely given to them for a long period of time. So, you know, once you started taking Vioxx, you took it for life. And so that yeah. meant that any side effects that could start arising could be cumulative. And so in this mm-hmm. particular case, the Vioxx clinical trial, if you actually look at the data, and I have looked at it, you know, there were actually, I think, 20,000 patients involved with the trial. And so now you actually need to look at either that population or bigger to ensure that drugs that have a very large patient population are extremely safe with regards to these events. You know, that said, I think the added knowledge being brought into the process through genomics and other areas means that you can separate out those people who have a susceptibility to those adverse events, and that could potentially mean that, that Vioxx could come back on the market. It was actually a godsend for people who had, uh, you know, chronic, terrible pain, and it was a very mm-hmm. great drug for actually managing that pain. It's just for a small population, potentially they were at risk of dying. Thank you. Thank you very much. Joe Miles, a lot of meat to, on the bones, a lot of stuff to chew on. What are your thoughts on anything <laughs> yeah. and everything? Ashish is, uh, uh, what can I tell you? Ashish and, think- and Alan have, have certainly covered a lot of territory. Give me some thoughts on, on whatever you care to. No, they, they, they certainly have. I think they brought up a lot of points. I think they brought up the fact that, you know, between all of that, you can the complexity involved in developing a drug is is, is clearly pretty sophisticated. And, and mm-hmm. um, I think if you just look at one impact that's had across it to kind of build on those thoughts is the, the patent expiries over the last 10, 12 years or so, where we saw basically 400 to $500 billion of revenue go from the branded market to the generic market has changed everything. And although in the past we might have wanted to try to attempt and try new innovations around clinical trials and so forth, now we have to. Because there's no, there's no getting around the fact they need we need to get products to market more quickly. They need to be innovative products. They need to drive tremendous value, and and, and efficacy for 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 patients, which result in, in tremendous shareholder value. And and never is that more apparent. Um, if you think about the amount of data that's coming from all these different areas now, and, and as Alan was kind of pointing out from a Vioxx perspective, it, it's not just simply hearing about one or two patients having. Uh, an issue with a drug, and then consequently understanding the cause, of, you know, the reason for that, uh, the cause for that, and then be able to react accordingly. It doesn't happen overnight, and that takes a lot of time, a lot of uh, resources as well. I think the where we're seeing a lot of organizations moving now in this concept of continuous 
um, a clinical trial that is leveraging much of these technologies, these devices of sorts, and as I mentioned earlier, kind of this patient-provided outcome. So even though you can release a product to market, the clinical trial effectively can continue to operate as or as individuals and patients, um, either through their their physician or directly through devices of sorts, are capturing more data that continues to give them insight to, to try to help understand what is the long-term impact of, of these products and uh, is, there a, is there a significant side effect that we need to be aware of to whether we either have to remove a drug or maybe we have to place a, a black box uh, you know, warning around something you know related to that. I would say that I think what's helping a lot of this and what we're seeing from our from our customers and, and partners is that the um, the use of the genomic data is is helping become more um, more targeted with uh, you know with the patient populations and understanding at a genetic level level um, the, the definition of, of a patient population and more more specifically the reaction to that that molecule. Um, can be more precise and more repeatable and more consistent. And that, in turn, is driving greater awareness, greater understanding. Um, but yet, that's we are still in the very early days of personalized medicine and, and the genomic research. So there's still a long way to go there. It's certainly very promising in, in what we hear, um, you know, from our customers and our, our, uh, our partners in this area. Uh, but we'll, let's not fool ourselves. We're still a long way away from that, and there's a lot of science to be, to be, uh, to be dealt with. Um, but we're certainly starting to make a lot of progress. That's exciting, Joe, and and very. I asked for a little optimism in my intro. I said I hope the panel can give me. I sense a glimmer there. I have a question for the whole panel, just briefly, and then when we're finished with that answer, I'm going to go to Dr. Alan Louie and talk about some notes you sent me, Alan. Some interesting points I want to bring up for the panel. Now, my question is: We all know what's in the, the news today, every day for the past couple of weeks, months. Ebola, the E word. It's not a nice word. It's not a great word. It's scary. It's scary as heck. It's wiping out population. So my question is, in light of our conversation just now about clinical trials, I used the word urgency in my opening intro. And the question is, what happens in pharma? Just a brief answer from each of you, starting with Ashish. What happens in the pharma industry when this red flag, this flashing red light says, oh my God, we've got another plague. We've got something horrible, a scourge, if anybody remembers that old-fashioned word. We need to shift gears. We need to do something. We need to put more money and effort and technological intelligence into solving something that now is on the forefront of wiping out lives. What What is the reaction? Is there a reaction? Ashish Goel, just give me a little perspective from your position at Infosys. What are you observing? Yes, yeah, so Bari, there, actually, we could, uh, uh, we could uh, look at it in two parts. First mm-hmm. is uh, these kind of situations require uh, rapid response uh, with uh, everything that's understood about the disease and the data that's available about the disease, the, the scientific development that exists, uh, uh, exists about the disease. And this is where, again, we come back to the subject of uh, clinical trials. Uh, mm-hmm. Clinical trials take time uh, yes. in the way they are conducted today. How can we solve that? How can the industry actually get the drugs through the trials faster in the face of tougher and tougher regulatory uh, regimes? And there are two, two things that come to, my, talk, come to top of my mind. First is uh, make it more efficient, make it uh, leaner, make it uh, smarter. And this is where uh, the predictive technologies uh, uh, lean supply chain technologies come into play. Uh, if we could uh, leverage the technologies to g- 
get the the the, the drugs, the samples. Uh, so first of all, allow the technology, uh, use technology to uh, to get the clinical trials set up quickly. It takes mm-hmm. time to set the clinical trials up. Can we get the, can we get that going? Once that is there, covering diverse set of population, how can we actually streamline the supply chain so that the the uh, the material moves faster, results are captured faster, results are analyzed faster, and therefore outcomes are uh, are achieved faster. So that's uh, and this is where the whole uh, gamut of technologies that are in the in the market today to drive uh, clinical trial supply management efficiency come into play. Thank the you. Second, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. The second idea uh, I would share with you is, and this is now beginning to happen. I think it will, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, Joe talked about uh, the, the whole personalized medication is still a little far away, and I agree with him. However, um, these uh, virtual clinical trials are, are beginning to uh, take place today in parts, not for the entire, uh, replacing the entire existing clinical trial cycles, but parts of those cycles. And what virtual clinical trials are, Really uh, simulating the disease, simulating the the ah. medication in mm-hmm. a in a in a, com- in a in a computerized environment, be analyzing abundant amount of data with sophisticated uh, algorithms, and uh, and as far as I see, that's that's where actually a mass uh, um, improvement can be achieved um, uh, for for improving the clinical trial pace. Great. Thank you, Ashish. There's some more optimism there. Alan Louie, Joe Miles, who wants to join in and, and give me your perspective on the can we take a sharp left or right turn from current ongoing clinical trials and address something like the Ebola I- situation? Alan, Joe? Yeah, so this is Alan. I'll go ahead and jump in first, uh, and then sure. I'm sure Joe will follow with more stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, clearly as much as, as the FDA and other regulatory agencies are often considered to be sort of gatekeepers uh, that keep drugs from people, the one thing that they do do, and they do very well, is to ensure that for drugs that are approved for the market, that they do work and that, there are, that they are safe. And so the one hazard that one runs into when you start having major problems like Ebola or swine flu or other diseases where, you know, there isn't something you can just grab off the shelf and, and basically use mm-hmm. to treat people, is that there is, in many cases, you know, drugs get out there, you'll, you want to put something in someone's hands, uh, and it may or may not work. And, and what's amazing to all this is that in many cases, a person can be cured after they've been given the placebo, uh, basically a neutral compound that, that is not the active drug. And what one finds is that the strength of the human body and the human mind uh, to cure disease can be quite phenomenal in some cases. And so in that regard, you know, where you've now advanced forward with what we now call compassionate use cases. So there's a drug that's in development against something, and you say, well, this is urgent. We need to really try it, and people are willing to try it because the alternative in this particular case is death. So you say, well, let's just give them the drug, even though it's not approved, it's not proven to work, et cetera, and let's find out. And so in some cases, uh, the person can be cured, which if you look at Ebola, for example, I think the the recognized death rate for Ebola is about 60%, which means four out of ten people are going to get well uh, without any, any treatment. In most cases, it's basically maintaining their fluids, et cetera. Uh, in those other six cases, you don't know whether the cure was due to the drug or whether it was just due to the robustness of that individual. And so one needs to be really careful as you look at diseases like this where 
there isn't a cure and that people are really without hope and they want anything that potentially could could help them to survive it. Uh, it is uh, an unusual case where mm-hmm. there are essentially drugs that have been uh, under development or have been put on the shelf because, you know, from a commercial aspect, uh, everybody would like there to be a drug for every disease, but it takes billions of dollars to bring new drugs to market. And so that's an investment from a business standpoint. And as you look at it as a business, um, it's nice to actually realize that you're saving people, but also not losing money at the same time. So drugs that, unless it's a purely altruistic uh, venture, uh, Mm -hmm. need to actually uh, be commercially successful in order for them to succeed in the market. And so from that perspective, a drug like Ebola, which at this point has killed, I believe, five or 6,000. There is estimates that that it could be, uh, could in terms of infection, extend to in, in the you know, around 50 plus thousand over the course of the next few months. So a lot of people are getting this, but you know, relative to the number of people that uh, die from the flu or diseases that we can manage, uh, it is a small number, but it is a very much an unknown because of the scariness of the, of the uh, disease itself. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for the reality check. Uh, a lot, lot of good stuff there. Joe Miles, talk to me. Yeah, so I think what the, the two panelists have mentioned is that, you know, hopefully Ebola is a, is a rare entity, right? We don't like to have things come along like that and catch us um, in, a, in a rapid cycle that we've had little awareness of, of this disease state and, and all of a sudden it becomes a, a rampant issue. And, and I think obviously uh, engaging uh, World Health Organizations and, and in regions and governments and so forth becomes critical into trying to, to develop a a response to that, and that's how, and that can never be more important. And you, and you hope that you know, these don't happen a whole lot. I think, on the other hand, though, if you think about uh, GSK, was in the process of developing a vaccine uh, for Ebola that's been, I think, was used in some of those compassionate cases uh, with the two individuals uh, who were in Africa, and I think were brought back to the states to Atlanta. Um, you know, so they were actually they had some time that there had been some research going down that path. Um, it, it seems to highlight and and, and not. Kind of building off the other two comments, it does seem to highlight directly, though, in I think a trend that we're seeing that um, that engaging the providers, getting a closer relationship to the actual practitioners in on on the ground, whether it be in a, in a foreign land or whether it be in a local local community hospital, um, and working closely with the with the physicians becomes, I think, um, I think a new driver in in the world of trying to drive better outcomes and, and how is it that's not simply taking a drug anymore is the best way to to have an improved outcome because uh, outcomes can be improved by by diet by exercise by uh, having a good care circle to being ensuring that you're taking your 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 regimen on a regular basis. There's a lot of reasons that can can drive to that and, and obviously providers and, and physicians are at the at the center of that. Um, mm-hmm. And as and as technology has advanced, and that's allowing us to, to be more proactive and to be able to monitor those conditions, to understand when someone may not have taken their drugs, or someone who is maybe not exercising as much, and what what that means in the, in an overall sense. So there's, I think on the one hand, there's there's that side of the discussion, and, and I think companies are really trying to drive towards that in in both a clinical context, but also in a in a commercial context once the product is released to market. But the interesting, I think, I think when when you highlight. Um, Ebola specifically to the African nation, um, the whole issue of of disease states in emerging markets where the commercial market may not be the same as in other more mature markets 
presents a real quandary for um, how do you how do you invest the as Alan was pointing out the billions of dollars required to get a drug to market when the market itself cannot sustain that type of investment from a from an economic perspective and it's creating a very different um, uh, you know an, an almost an ethical quandary of how do you how do you rectify that obvious uh, mm-hmm. uh, change of that right so you get, we're moving away from the blockbuster drug you move more towards a volume based drug somewhat the AIDS context of uh, years ago a few years back it just creates a, a different dynamic and I think um, it's one of the, the areas that again a lot of our, our customers are as we begin to open up new markets as we begin to see the rise of the middle class on a more global basis uh, presenting those different situations it's emerging new disease states as, as they're they're discovered um, but presents a whole new set of, of uh, dynamics uh, relative to getting a product to market and developing new drugs. Thank you, Joe. Great comments. I want to move in a slightly different direction. I'm very tempted to skip the last break and and just give you each about a minute for your predictions at the end because we have so much territory to cover. Uh, But let's go to some talking points from Dr. Alan Louie. I'm very intrigued by the following sentence, Alan, you told me before the show. You say, technological innovation is empowering automated intelligence in the life science industry. Is this related to the simulations that Ashish just mentioned or is this something else? Talk to me. Well, actually, in reality, it's going to be that as well as much, much more. Um, I would argue that the modeling and simulation is still very early because our mm-hmm. knowledge in the area is relatively limited. Um, you know, I raised the example earlier about um, a case where someone's blood pressure starts to go up in the course of a clinical trial. And so what I'm presuming is that as you look at the nature of Um, the way in which data is collected for clinical trials. There's a lot of data systems now where it can either be collected directly at the patient bedside, the laboratory Mm -hmm. tests get automatically fed into a database, and so this information is becoming accessible in more real time. In doing so, you can now basically put little, essentially, screens on top of the data that regularly look at it and say, is there anything that's out of the ordinary that is really a concern that I've recognized based on either other clinical trials or key factors that may be associated with this particular clinical trial. And so, for example, if you say, you know, if, you know, you start to see an elevated blood pressure in one patient, you start to look around and say, well, is it elevated in any other patients? And so when Mm -hmm. some percentage of patients exhibit that, you will automatically send a note to the the drug safety person who's looking at the trial and say, you want to take a look at this data set because there may be a problem that we want to be aware of. And so it could be blood pressure. It could be uh, elevated levels of all number of things being monitored in the course of the trial. But basically you can create that into a little automated alert such that it's constantly screening the data and someone doesn't need to go look for it. And so you can look at it at, at both the tactical level in that regard as well as from, from a much grander scale. As you look at for example, the enrollment of patients in a new clinical trial. And that's one of the major um, hurdles to actually getting a trial underway is actually getting enough patients to participate in it. And so mm-hmm. you're looking at the patient recruitment in a very controlled fashion. And so as you look around, you can say, for example, you know, this is now three months into the, into the recruitment, and which sites have, done, have been successful in recruiting patients and which haven't? And for the ones who haven't, why aren't they um, as successful? So that might mean that someone needs to be sent over to that site so that you can help them out, or you need to be able to look at more tools that can help the investigator to bring, uh, to bring patients on, or you might even want to terminate a site because they're just not very good at it. 
so all of these types of automations at a very process-oriented level essentially serve to do what, what Ashish was talking about. How do I make the process much more efficient such that I can streamline the time and ensure that I meet all my timelines and essentially get, get the process done as quickly as possible? Thank you. Joe Miles, thoughts on what Alan Louis just shared with us? Well, it, it's um, it's again. I think as a as a technology provider, sort for the industry, we would we certainly see that going on. And I and I think the again, if you take it back to the origin of a lot of this, is is quite frankly, I think the the margin erosion that has occurred has has become a driving factor across the industry. It has forced the industry to respond where in years past they may not have responded as quickly as as a result of that. The emergence of technology is transforming the ability and providing the opportunity to capture information in unprecedented levels, whether it's just the volumes of data that are coming through genomic research and large molecule type studies, or um, uh, patient-provided out, uh, outcome information that are coming from various devices, cell phones or contact lenses, whatever it might be, that the, that's being captured. Um, in some cases, I've talked to some of the researchers who have, are capturing as much as um, 50 terabytes of data per patient uh, in a clinical mm. trial, which wow. is just mind-boggling when you think of that type of volume. Staggering. So, and, but, but too much data can also be a bit of an issue as well. And the point of it is that what this is doing is allowing them to have more information, to have more data. Uh, that data is going to drive greater insight around that data and, and our ability to understand that and also to, to, to utilize that data becomes really critical. It will then drive better understandings, as we were talking earlier, about uh, genomically defined patient populations, about interactions of, of drugs on those specific populations, having greater insight into uh, adverse events or different types of side effects that may be emerging far earlier than what we had seen before, because now we're actually not waiting for someone to come into a physician's office. We're actually mm-hmm. seeing it almost as it happens in the field. Um, that type of, of dynamics are, are really unprecedented. And I think as you start to see um, the proliferation of the partners and, and players in the industry starts to make it things even more interesting. And if you think about what Apple has done to the healthcare industry in the last few years with the, uh, with the development of the iPad and how that has changed the way physicians actually quite literally interact with, with patients, it allows people to have a much different view of data and their ability to drill into data. Um, I think we're going to continue to see the non-traditional player in the healthcare sense entering into the market that's bringing an innovation that's completely out of context with healthcare. But that's the point. It's bringing a whole different view and can potentially transform that. Um, and it's going to be required because right now, as we've, as we've all kind of danced around and talked about at different levels, the metrics just aren't aren't working right now in terms of uh, revenue numbers to time time to market to to maintaining a sustainable um, uh, threshold. That there's a lot of activity and and it's just we're struggling with that right now. So that's going to continue to to evolve. And I think it's a, it's a fascinating time uh, at this point. Thank you, thank you very much, Joe. You covered a point I was going to ask you to talk about uh, iPads being a non-healthcare technology. Just FYI, we did a show with Dan Mahold, who used to be one of the VPs of Mobility at SAP a few years ago. He was actually my first guest on the very first Coffee Break show in 2011. We did a show with three people from SAP about the mobility of healthcare today, about the fact that a patient's records can digitally be available just like that, anywhere they are, available to the patient, to the physician, to 
anybody in the healthcare arena who's who's uh, monitoring them. So it certainly has changed. Guess what, panelists? We have covered so much territory and barely scratched the surface. Of course, you know that. But we are at the point now where it's time to slide into the final segment. No break. Sorry. We're heading toward the close. We have eight minutes to go. And our final segment is called the Crystal Ball Predictions Round. So I'm going to circle back to Ashish Goel at Infosys. Ashish, I'm going to give you exactly, ooh, let's see, I give you two minutes on the clock to tell us what are your predictions if we met again in the year, let's arbitrarily say 2020, my favorite year because it sounds so cool. Uh, what would you be saying about the status of pharma and technology? What will have changed? And if you like a different year better, Ashish, go ahead. So two minutes, Ashish Goel, start, please. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Um, I think we are on the cusp of some some serious technology evolution, and I expect by 2020 we'll be looking at uh, uh, two or three things happening. Number one, uh, remote health monitoring. I think Alan talked about briefly with the technology conversions we are seeing today, iWatch, Novartis Google coming out with this contact lens to monitor uh, um, uh, the blood sugar remotely and so on and so forth, we will be in a situation where patients will be able to opt for the kind of uh, remote health monitoring they would like to have. Number two, I expect uh, the science would have evolved much more strongly in favor of uh, large molecule biotech-based medication. And uh, personalized medication uh, medicines, though wouldn't have become a full reality, we would be inching towards that. And as a result, uh, again, uh, more and more uh, virtual clinical trials, uh, ability to push the drugs faster would have actually started becoming a reality. And last but not the least is preventive health care is uh, what I see happening with uh, the availability of information uh, with the physicians, with the patients, and the payers uh, this uh, the the uh, the course for uh, a, a robust preventive healthcare plan uh, would start becoming a reality for a lot of us, if not most. That would Thank be very uh, much. my prediction for 2020, Bonnie. Great, great. Thank you very much, Ashish. Alan Louie at IDC Health Insights. What do you see? 2020 is good for you, or when do you want to go? Um, actually, I'm going to play with that target date because I think there's a couple of different things that that will be interesting and relevant. Um, starting with the 2020 part, we actually put out an annual report that we're working on right now around what we call a futurescape. You know, what's going to be happening in the future and how do we see it impacting the industry overall? And one of the ones that a colleague and I are working on in looking at 2020 is a claim that we would say that what everyone is talking about is big data. In 2020, that's just going to be data. That's just what people will deal with. And to a large extent, it's based on the fact that I think a smarter analysis of data right up the front means that you don't have to keep it all. And essentially, you know, if you look at whole genome sequencing, as an example, you know, it's something where you generate 4 billion data points at the end of the day, but it starts off with terabytes of information. And so Mm -hmm. if you figure out what's important, you don't have to collect the whole thing. You don't have to save the whole thing. So from that perspective, I think there's a lot of processes which, through both the utilization of specific technologies, whether it be complex analytics or high-powered computing solutions, et cetera, I, I'm arguing that by 2020, we're not going to actually have a big data problem anymore. It's actually going to be just the way that people manage it. And from the perspective of researchers, you know, it's all transparent to them. They just basically do all their stuff. It shows up on the screen, and they can continue with the information that they can use to drive their research forward. And that said, 
you know, the other big claim I would argue is that this is something I've been arguing for a while and I heard about a number of years ago. So 15 years ago, Ray Kurzweil argued that we're going to have an in silico human being in 25 years. And so that means that at this point, by around 2025, we're going to have an in silico human being. Uh, in support of what Ashish had started with in terms of modeling and simulation, this means that we now have the basic model of how a human being works in a computer model. This doesn't say mm. that we're going to be able to basically treat everybody using this model because obviously everybody has their own little variations here and there, and that's going to take quite a bit longer. But with that information in place, we now are working very strongly from a more knowledge-based process so that as you treat people, you can actually pick the right approach, pick the right solution, and actually deal with that patient and get a positive outcome much more quickly. So I think there's a lot of good stuff coming, and I, I think that you know, the traditional drug route will continue with both big molecules and small molecules. And uh, as we move forward, again, ideally the answer is that there are no areas with medical unmet needs. So there's always going to be something, and those somethings will get better over time. Thank you, Alan Louie. Great predictions. Joe Miles, you're up. Exactly two minutes. Go. Okay. Well, not much of what I mentioned earlier. I think we're going to continue to see the need to innovate and uh, the proliferation of devices that will, will drive a lot of that innovation, both from uh, devices that are part of the, the ther- therapy as well as devices that are being used to, to capture the, the broad array of data. Um, I think this is also going to lend itself to bringing in new players into the healthcare scheme who may not be healthcare providers, whether it be a Samsung or an Apple or a company to be named later. Um, that is going to continue to bring innovation, much-needed innovation, um, to the industry, which is going to drive um, a variety of, of opportunities, and probably improving improving outcomes, improving time to market, and getting these these products to uh, to bear, and, and, and those tremendous outcomes that they're going to they're going to deliver as well. What I do think is interesting, and Alan, you stole my thunder a little bit, but I totally agree with you that I think the whole concept of big data. Is going to uh, is going to basically go away, and it's just going to be data of sorts. I think it'll actually be more insight driven, uh, much more analytic driven, much more precise than having all of this data. And I and I mean that in the sense of um, what we talk about now in terms of capturing all of this data uh, from a research perspective. Uh, we'll we'll have a lot of that, but we'll be it'll be much more um, much easier to deal with that. But also in the sense of from a diagnostic sense, where we're already seeing. Um, organizations looking to use uh, genomic data, for example, as part of your pre, uh, pre-GP screening. You know, you come in, mm-hmm. you take your blood pressure, you take your, they weigh you, um, you do a couple of simple tests. Well, they also t- draw a little bit of your blood and run a genomic test, and we use it as a, as a, um, a diagnostic tool to see if there any, to ad- and identify any variant um, genes that may be precursors to disease states that uh, that may be coming uh, later in life. So I Joe Miles, think Joe that, Miles that's happen. My, yep. my blood pressure is up because I've got 30 seconds to close the show, but you don't need to send <laughs> okay. anybody with a special iPad. Thank you so much. I'm sorry to cut you off. I have to say special thank you to Ashish Goel at Infosys and Pramod Pratap for working with us to get Ashish on the show. Alan Louie at IDC, great to meet you. Joe Miles at SAP. Shout-outs to Brad Bork and Susan Rafazada.
who helped set up the show, Malcolm, Kimberlin, Brad, and the Business Channel team. Quick heads up. Let's see. Tomorrow is uh, Thursday. That means we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to have a repeat of last week's The Customer Edge with Game Changers. Next week, we'll be debuting The Internet of Things with Game Changers. And then next Thursday, uh, let's see, this Thursday, tomorrow, I'm all over the place. Innovating Innovation with Game Changers debuts at 10 a.m. Eastern. And the following week, we do Episode 2 of The Future of Business with Game Changers. Monday is HR Trends. Tuesday is Financial Excellence. Wednesday is Coffee Break. Wow. Thank you to the Business Channel team. And here is my call to action from Bonnie. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bye-bye. Be healthy. Ciao. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.